One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about, you guessed it, Brexit. Today we've got lots of chat about Brexit, Le Pen, elections, but before any of that, we just want to thank you for downloading, subscribing, following us on Twitter, but most importantly, leaving us those iTunes reviews. They're massively important, they do lots of things with algorithms that I don't understand and push us up some imaginary charts. So please get onto iTunes and leave us a review. It just helps us out and make sure that we keep on producing this podcast week in, week out. As always, I am joined by, by Alex and Christian. Hi. Hi. Uh, right, so last week we sat down about 10.30 on a Tuesday and we said it was a slow news week. So who would like to pick up with the events that happened after 11.15? Go on, Christian. You, okay, you start so me. Yeah, so um, we, uh, we kind of found out just as we were coming down actually to the recording last week that the Prime Minister was going to make a statement um, at quarter past 11. Uh, she teed up a bit early and I think there was lots of speculation immediately about what it was some people were even <laughs> talking even talking that it might be about Northern Ireland and about mm-hmm. the uh, the challenges of governance over there we had health um, scares we had all sorts there was all sorts yeah um, somebody even suggested she might be pregnant which seems <laughs> <laughs> an interesting a little late line. in the day a little late in the day absolutely um, and then some Twitter kind of went alive when the podium was put out on Downing Street and they said there's no number 10 logo on the podium which means it was going to be a party political speech not a government speech. Oh, very smart. Uh, so, so a few people suggested, of course, they were right. So we are now in full general election footing, uh, 8th of June. Uh, the country goes back to the polls again, um, which for those of us like me here work in, the, uh, work in the world of policy has kind of just exploded the diaries for the next six weeks while we, we get ready onto our kind of manifesto and campaign footing. So, yeah, back to the polls. So there is a bit of a debate at the moment. Is this an election, a Brexit election, or is it an election about other things, NHS, uh, education, every, um, everything else? My question to you is, how much do you think the Brexit process has pushed this election? Um, well, I think, if, first of all, if we look to the reasoning that May gave for doing it, and I think from the Conservatives' perspective in particular, it, it kind of makes sense. So May's argument essentially was that there is kind of not, uh, not enough agreement in Whitehall and that the parties are kind of arguing over the Brexit strategy and things like that. Um, she mentioned this line that the country's coming together but Whitehall is not. I'm sure some people would probably disagree with the first half of that. Um, 
So yeah, they, they, it kind of seems like the Conservatives have done this really. Um, I think I think for two two clear reasons. The first one is that they hope to and are expected to, I guess, um, secure a, a larger majority than they currently have which would obviously bolster their mandate for the type of Brexit that they want to go for. Um, but I, I think the, the second part of it really is the fact that if there wasn't an election now, um, we, we would potentially be having a general election landing right in the middle of the whole Brexit process. So the Article 50 negotiations, as we all know, are due to conclude in 2019, but it's anticipated that we'll have a transitionary arrangement for three years. Going on for 20, going on till 2022, which is when we should officially exit, and the whole thing should be, you know, technically complete at least in its first phase. Um, and so this election really lines it all up nicely, so that whoever wins will have kind of control of the whole process um, up until at least 2022. Now, one of the things Theresa May kept on alluding to, both before she announced the election and after it, was this need for stability. Do we think the election has actually provided the UK with more stability or less? I think I'm probably obliged to say on behalf of all my members that general elections never provide certainty <laughs> um, in any sense. And I think after, you know, business has been through a pretty rough, uh, although it's weathered it very well, it's been, th- it's been through a pretty tough period since, since the referendum was first called, you know, what's that, so 14, 15 months ago now. Um, so I don't think... So we've not spoken to members about this much, just because it's all, it's all pretty new news at the minute. But I don't think there's much sort of expectation that there's going to be stability, at least in the short term. This is now actually just as you thought you knew what the world was looking like, at least through until, um, until Brexit kind of gets going properly. Now, actually, you've got another little period where, where we're not quite sure where things are going to go. However, I think picking up on, on Alex's point, I think we've, we've probably got a better chance now of some form of stability over the medium to long term. Um, you know, the challenge for Theresa May and the Conservatives is they've got a tiny parliamentary majority. They've got a small but um, small but noisy right section, a section of the right of the Conservative Party that is, that is desperate for, um, you might even say, an ultra-hard Brexit at all costs. Um, now, of course, because of that tiny majority, Theresa May has had to pay a great deal of attention to what those people, those side of her party has been saying. There's been quite a few commentators, even on the day when she called it last week, um, but there was also a press statement from Deutsche Bank, which is always interesting, that afternoon, which said actually they kind of hope that this means we can probably steer a slightly more pragmatic, softer Brexit, mm. purely because Theresa May is now less likely to be kind of in hock to that ultra-right um, part of her party. We know she was a Remainer, though she didn't campaign actively, she'd have preferred to remain. Um, the question, I guess, is all of that rhetoric we've heard from her since she was installed as Prime Minister um, about, you know, this is it, we know what we're doing, the country's united, we're out, we're out of the single market, we're out of the customs union. Is that, has that been rhetoric just to kind of calm the right of her party and the UKIP side down? Is that her own personal belief? That we don't know for certain, but I think a lot of analysts are saying her own position is probably a bit more pragmatic than that. And so, actually, a large majority, I mean, analysts are saying anything between 100 and 200 seats is plausible, um, would give her that confidence that actually what she wants to do and push through Parliament will go through. Now, this election was, well, it caught everyone by surprise, it's, it's fair to say. Do you think that she had any other option than to say previously that there's going to be no election until... Uh, when, 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 was the, when was the next one due? 2020. 2020. Yeah. Uh, does anyone think that she had any, um, any other option but to say that? 
Um, I, I guess not, and I guess it comes back to the whole kind of stability, uncertainty argument. I, I guess kind of rumours starting that there was going to be an election at some point might have added to the uncertainty, and it was definitely something which the government was seeking to avoid. And so it's, it's totally understandable um, why she said previously that there wasn't going to be an election. And I find it, I find it quite funny, really, how when the announcement was made, immediately people were coming out going, well, well, she's been saying for so long that there wasn't going to be one. And you kind of think, well, you know, it's, it's, done, it's done now. It, it doesn't matter what she said before. <laughs> you know, to try and create a stable environment uh, for the negotiations to take place or for us to lay out our initial position. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's happening. And uh, I, I certainly don't think we can blame her for, for making that statement before and then changing it later on. Does it say anything about the way she might negotiate or the way she might deal with her negotiations in Europe? My gut reaction is probably not. Um, I mean, this is, you know, yes, I mean, she talked about, you know, the country being um, united, which I think, as Alex hinted earlier, I don't yeah. think that's, I don't think that's uh, even close to being true. Um, she talked about Westminster being disunited and that sort of being a challenge. Well, mm. actually, she got a very, very solid majority uh, in both houses for the, for the triggering of Article 50. So I think it's not necessarily true Westminster is as divided as she's portrayed it on that. But we know there's a huge amount of disagreement about the detail. And of course, that's what will come through. But ultimately, she's a politician. You know, it's, you know, I don't, in many ways, I kind of think we'd all be disappointed if politicians weren't opportunists. Yeah, I mean, I mean at least be a good politician. If you're going to be good at something, be good yeah, at that. Yeah, it, it, it's part of the game. And I guess those in the business world, you know, your, what your actual strategy is and what you're actually planning um, behind closed doors in your boardroom or your SMT meetings is very rarely what you're going to put on your marketing material. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it's okay to have one public line and one private line. That's just the way the world works. We all kind of wish it were otherwise. Uh, and wouldn't it be lovely if we were all open and transparent and 100% honest all the time? But actually, the world doesn't work like that. Um, I guess kind of the challenge here now is laying out actually what that Brexit looks like. As Alex said, the fact that the... I mean, it's, you know, we're, I'm kind of prejudging the election, but if we assume the polls are right, even to within 20 points, we've got a very solid Conservative majority coming um, from June. They're now going to be looking after the entire process, which actually means if they're seeking a mandate now to do whatever it is they're going to do, I think they're going to have to be much more explicit about what that medium and longer term vision of Brexit looks like. For now, it's been easy to focus on the on the easy stuff. We don't want free movement. We don't want single market. We don't want customs union. Actually, we're now looking to 2022. So what are you going to be looking for as part of that transitional deal? What are you going to be looking like? What are you looking for for what will come after the transitional deal? Because um, essentially that will expire probably two months before the next general election. Interesting, you mentioned about the potential change in focus on uh, on Brexit with a majority. We've spoken about this before, the weakness of the opposition. Do you think there is a danger that actually she's not going to be more explicit? She's going to sit back, she's going to wait to get a, get a majority, and we'll be none the wiser what they're going to be looking for after the election than we are pre-election, because no one's really holding them to account. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is a worry that if you know, potentially they secure a larger majority and potentially we don't have any re- really any more detail than we do have now, um, that that will kind of be used to, I guess, kind of shut up the other side, I guess, slightly. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I find this quite interesting, really, this whole election thing, because it, it's, it's obviously going to be a Brexit election. It's obviously going to be the biggest issue. It's kind of the reason why it's been called. Um, and we can all look at the polls and see that it's, it's highly expected that the Conservatives will win. Um, but it's also going to be really interesting to see what happens in terms of the vote for Labour and the Lib Dems too. 
Um, and the reason why I find this quite interesting, and I, I guess we're going to have to wait until the manifestos come out, and I'm not quite sure when that's going to happen. I don't know if Christian, if, if no, if not we a know. clue. Um, but so I mean, I, I would anticipate that for for the Conservatives, their manifesto is probably just going to align with everything that was said in the Plan for Britain speech, um, and the the kind of twelve priority areas that they've set out already. What I what I'm kind of more interested to see is what the other parties say. Because it's not clear to me at this point how much we're going to be able to stray from the course that's currently been set. Um, and the Lib Dems in particular have instantly came out and have, have kind of started campaigning on this. Um, not necessarily we're going to stop Brexit, you know, we're going to stop Brexit from happening. I think that kind of ship sailed. But definitely the kind of vote for us if you want to avoid a hard Brexit type line. Um, and what's not clear to me is how much they're going to be able to actually influence this um, yeah. if, if, they, if they do secure more seats. Because, I mean, the way that I see it is that we've basically already told the EU what we want and they've broadly kind of agreed and said, yeah, that we'll negotiate towards those objectives. So at this point, it's not quite clear to me what kind of, um, what kind of hands that the other, part, the other parties can play at this point. Um, and I'm going to be interested to see um, just how specific the details are on the Brexit strategies when the manifestos come out. Now, just a point you mentioned earlier on, she might use her majority to engineer a slightly softer Brexit. Do you think that the statement she made in the Lancaster House speech, leaving, uh, ending freedom of movement, ending the jurisdiction of the European Court, Court of Justice, uh, and all those hard Brexit elements, they, they will still stay? And if so, how will she then negotiate a softer Brexit? I think, it's, I think it's a really good question and one which I certainly don't have the answer to clearly at this stage. I think, I think as in one of the things we talked about a lot in the, in the Brexit issue more broadly is this concept of process, not event. Um, so, you know, whatever outcome it is you want, let's leave that open for now. Um, it's about how you get there. It's going to take many years to do it. It's going to take lots of negotiations. We are one amongst um, 28 uh, going through those negotiations, whilst the EU will will negotiate as a single entity, there are there are another twenty seven member states. Uh, views will be taken into account, and all of a sudden you see it's the route by which I think we traverse that that is so important. So, in lots of our writings and Alex's blogs, particularly in the early days around the referendum, we t we emphasise really strongly this this process, not an event concept. Because even if the end point is hard Brexit, even if actually we are determined, and certainly you know for now all we can assume the Conservatives' manifesto is going to be is going to be that twelve-point plan, which is as you said, uh, Jonathan, outside the single market, outside the customs union, outside ECJ jurisdiction. There are probably an infinite number of routes to get between the situation we're in now to that end point. Mm. You could take a very hard UKIP view and say, actually, we simply burn the treaties and walk away, which would give you a hard Brexit overnight, um, for which you know, the evidence is that would be a pretty catastrophic outcome uh, economically. You could also work over a two-year negotiation, a three-year transition and longer FTAs, sorry, free trade agreements, to get to that same point in 10 years' time and have a relatively stable environment doing it. Mm. So I think the question is, is now it's about the route, not the destination. I think we broadly, we at least know the principal constituents of the end point. What we still don't know is how we're going to go from here to there. That's interesting. Um, that's interesting. Just explain a little bit further about the process and how you think that will evolve. Um, uh, it, it's, well, I mean, it, it's all guesswork at this point, but 
it's it's already been made clear um, both by us and the other side essentially that the matters of trade, for example, are are not likely to be solved in the two years, and that potentially we we won't even try to solve them within the two mm-hmm. years. That we'll set up the kind of initial divorce settlement first, and we'll sort out some of the um, I guess some of the more the issues which are seem seem to be more important to solve quickly. So the rights of uh, EU workers, um, things like that, the divorce settlement settlement bill, and things like that. Um, so those will be the things which make up the majority of the initial two years. Um, and it seems like uh, the the trade arrangements and the customs arrangements going forward will be left to be dealt with in perhaps the the three year transitional period. Um, at this point, um, it's it's not particularly clear how we do get there. I mean, the Conservatives have. I think a couple of times uh, kind of explicitly ruled out um, the kind of Norway or Switzerland option. Mm. But then when you kind of piece together everything that they're saying, you can kind of say, well, it's a bit it's a bit like this bit of the, the Switzerland uh, strategy, so maybe something like Switzerland plus. Um, and, then, and then you'll hear some ministers that, you know, mentioning that maybe EFTA could, could be brought in um, to take the place of the, the, the ECJ. Um, so, so there's kind of still a number of routes option to us, uh, open to us. Um, and... I, what I'm going to be interested in is what exactly the Lib Dems go for, because the Lib Dems, right off the bat, have been the, the kind of soft, pro-soft Brexit party, more so than Labour. Um, and I'm going to be interested to see whether they explicitly state um, what their transitional strategy would look like, whether they want to go some, down the kind of EEA EFTA route. Um, because I definitely still think that's, that's something that's on the cards, um, because I, t- to my eyes, it's a kind of off-the-shelf, easy option um, to get us into that transitional period and get us through the, the, the initial two years. It does feel to me like there's basically two routes, the hard Brexit route and the soft Brexit route, which everyone keeps on talking about. But they're slowly converging into this one, in basically into this one other route, which is, uh, I mean, it sounds to me as, uh, as if the EFTA route is easily the best option. Um, and that's, that's one that keeps on getting mooted over and over, even by the SNP. Um, I, you know, I mean, it, it depends on your, your viewpoint, I mean, as to whether you argue it's the best option. But what I would argue is that it's, it's the easiest option. Mm. Um, because it, 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 I mean, it depends on what you want out of Brexit to determine whether it's the best option. I mean, a lot of the reason why people were kind of against that, that, that as a transitionary arrangement in the first place was that we would, get, we would get stuck there, essentially. That we'd be kind of half in, half out, and that we'd get there, and that we'd never kind of progress... Uh, and so I guess that's a reason why some people thought we should try and avoid that kind of strategy. Um, but the, the EAF the option, as I see it, is, is an off-the-shelf option. And even if we don't explicitly go for something like that, I would imagine that what kind of future free trade arrangement uh, or we have, or however the transitional arrangement looks, it will be based on something similar to that, if not that explicitly. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see whether they mention any of these things explicitly. Interest, interestingly, actually, this morning, um, British Chambers of Commerce down in London held a uh, Brexit priorities webinar, um, and in on that was uh, Lord Bridges, George Bridges, who's a minister in Dexu, and um, we had the opportunity to pose questions and stuff like that to him, and I, I posed the question, um, what, are the, what do you see the chances of EEA or EFTA t- uh, being part of the transitional arrangement, and are they being considered? And when uh, that question was read out to him, he kind of laughed and he said, that's a very tempting question for me to go into, but at this point I don't want to go into it, um, which I thought was quite interesting. I wonder what so that he, means. He, he, kind of, he kind of dodged the question quite early on, which I, which I thought was quite an interesting response. Ah. Um, now, we have obviously spoke at length about the, the government position on previous podcasts. We've just touched a little bit on the Lib Dem position. Does Labour add anything to this debate? Um, 
speaking entirely apolitically, of course, <laughs> um, I think at the moment he's not adding anything other than confusion. Um, yeah. I, th- I think that's the real difficulty. Um, and, you know, in many ways that's not that's not alone on Brexit for them. That's mm. across many, and I think that's sort of symptomatic of where they, where they currently are in terms of policy formation. Um, their position is, is, I think, not clear. I mean, certainly they want, you know, they talk about wanting a good outcome. They've set out their six tests, which we talked about in a, in a podcast a few weeks ago. Um, but it's not really, it's not clear what it is they want. Um, you know, they talk about single market access being important, but, you know, our golden rule has always been if anybody's talking about single market access, there's no point listening any further because access is a, is a meaningless term mm. uh, in all of this. We have mm. access to it. Um, everywhere has access to it, and you know one of the commentators in the FT talked about you know Klingons on out in space have access to it. That's not an issue. Um, so no, I think these the is the you know the really easy and straightforward. Just slightly on a, on a tangent, uh, Chamber of Commerce. It's basically a lobbying group for business, for yeah. want of a better word. Um, now, obviously, you get connected into government because that's your job to find out what is going on with government. Do you? Do you spend a lot of time talking to opposition parties to find out what what policies they're formulating should should they get into power? Mm, yeah, we do. Uh, less so at kind of this stage in the political cycle. Less so with individual chambers like like mine here in Greater Manchester. But certainly our umbrella body, British Chambers mm. of Commerce, nationally routinely talks with all of the major parties um, about all of this. And I don't think they, you know, there's no real secrets. The thing, this, it's still, you know, it's still the narrative, particularly around Labour, is still very much the same. It's not entirely clear exactly what their position is um, at this stage. Um, I guess the, you know, the, in many ways, one of the good things for them, I guess, in the general election is it will kind of force that thinking uh, to come through. They're going to be publishing their manifesto in the next couple of weeks, come what may. Um, so they're going to have to tighten up uh, that focus. But yeah, routinely as chambers, yeah, we talk to all political parties. Yeah, it will be interesting because it does seem, from a leadership point of view, they're not particularly focused on anything really. But there are people in the Labour Party working hard on this. Keir Starmer immediately springs to mind. So it'll be interesting to see who formulates these policies and what they eventually look like. Yeah, I'd expect I'd expect Keir Starmer to be at the forefront. He's the he's the shadow secretary of state for uh, for leaving the European Union. Um, we've had him here at roundtables over the past uh, over the past few months, talking in uh, a bit more detail about about their kind of broad thoughts. But mostly, it's kind of about it's about creating a stable environment, which is great. That's exactly what they should be saying and they should be aiming for uh, clarity of those procedures, avoiding the worst aspects of hard Brexit. Um, again, no reason to disagree with any of that as a as an outcome. I think the challenge is just my comment earlier. I think because of because of the referendum result, yes, it was close at 52-48, but the, the Article 50 letter has gone. The current government and, you know, bar anything odd being happening, they're going to form the next government, have kind of set out their high-level objectives. So the detail now is the route. It's all got to be focused about the route. And I think that's where, when Alex was talking, the challenge of the Lib Dems particularly, um, we know that their manifesto now will include a call to remain in the single market. Um, you know, vote Lib Dem if you are the people who want to aim for a you know a softer Brexit, not necessarily reverse the decision, but a softer Brexit. Um, but the challenge is actually, I don't know what power they have to be able to influence that. Um, you know, we're what it's the old thing. We're on one side of the negotiating table. Um, the EU, at both Parliament and Commission, we've had the papers from from both the Parliament and the Commission now. They've all been absolutely clear, and many individual member states have been clear. You are not cherry picking 
aspect of the single market. If you leave, if you want to leave free movement to people, you leave free movement of, of, of the other the other three freedoms. Um, can, I'll just I'll just add something here because I, I thought I should mention this because it's only just come come to me. But we're speaking about um, you know how much influence the parties may be able to have over this whole process. Um, and it's kind of been clear from the start that the Lib Dems were anti-Brexit, but at the minute they're not specifically saying we want to stop the process. Um, because as we know, um, as, an, and as we've spoken about before in these podcasts, at this point it isn't legally clear whether Article 50 is revocable oh, or yes, not. Oh yes, of course. I don't know if you've forgot, forgotten about this. So that this I is, had, Alex. Yes. <laughs> this, is, um, this is the, I guess it's, it's being called the Dublin case, if I'm, if I'm right, um, because it's yeah. going to the courts in Dublin. Um, being headed by uh, a QC, Joe Morm. Was um, it prema- is this one that's premature, or was this the Article One? I can't remember what number. I think it is. I think it was the Article One Five One about the EEA that was thrown out for being premature. Right. Um, yes. So 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 this case, the, the Dublin case, um, is about whether or not Article Fifty is revocable, and whether or not at some point uh, between now and 2019 we can essentially say, you know what, we change our minds and we want to stop this whole thing from going forward, and. Um, immediately when this w- this election was announced and I was starting to think about well what influence can the parties actually have over this whole thing um, I, uh, I I tweeted Joe Morn because myself I didn't I didn't quite know what was going on with it and just said you know what's going on with this because um, it's it's it could have a massive impact on on the election itself I mean and it will it'll have to be pretty fast for the parties to be able to kind of take account of of the results of this but he he, he replied and said that there's a directions hearing happening today oh wow I'm not um, I'm not I'm not quite sure what the outcome of that's going to be, but it, it's still happening and it's still going ahead. So there are somewhere in the world a whole bunch of lawyers still trying to figure out whether we can change our mind and kind of stop this whole process. Now, this isn't the only thing which has indicated that uh, Article 50 might be revocable. I'm sure there are noises coming out of the EU from fairly senior senior people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I can't remember who it was, um, but there was one quoted uh, last week who said, look, if you want to change your mind and you decide you want to stay part of the big family... <laughs> We will literally welcome you back with open arms. Um, so the EU has hinted, no doubt, on the back of the general election announcement. It sees the opportunity to position itself, saying, "Look, dear British citizens, as you go and cast your uh, as you cast your vote in June, bear in mind that if you vote for a party that wants to keep you in the EU, we'd be happy to yeah. open that conversation." Um, so it's really interesting. I mean, how the British people and how it would go. I mean, let's you know, if we play a mind game and imagine the Liberal Democrats win a majority of forty <laughs> or fifty seats oh, me. Um, in June, um, where do we go from there? You know, the manifesto is unlikely, of course, at this stage to have "we'll reverse the process," which might mean even if they wanted to and they thought they could, mm-hmm. they might not have the manifesto commitment to be able to do it. Yeah. Uh, though the Lords may well back them anyway uh, if they wanted to do that. So there's. I mean, it, it's a mind game. It, you know, I think the, the, the Lib Dems are looking certainly to pick up a significant number of seats this time, um, but majorities are somewhere away. It's only when you think about it for quite a prolonged period of time you realise what a phenomenally difficult position uh, pro-Remain parties are currently in, because the soft Brexit option is just, well, it, it feels like it's so hard to get that balance right. Yes. Um, sorry, I'm sort of like chewing this over. As you said, we're into very hard topics here. Um, you know, 40, the, well, let's go to the, the view of the British people. They voted 52-48 to leave um, back in June last year. The opinion polls on whether the British public consider that to be a right or wrong decision. Since then, they've been conducted regularly by all of the main polling companies with subtly different questions and subtly different methodologies, they all basically show the country is 50-50 split, almost exactly. Is that right? And has never shifted 
since then. Um, there's been a shift between, so there's something like 10% of those who voted out now think it's a wrong decision, about 10% of those who think it was voted in think that's a wrong decision. But broadly, the, British, the country really is split on this still. Um, so I think that's that challenge, you know, we talked about earlier that Theresa May says, you know, the rest of the country is united. It isn't, not remotely on this. Um, but also, you know, some of the other polling suggests, you know, if you ask the questions in the right way, you can get figures which suggest perhaps only 15 or 20% would actively seek to reverse the decision um, if they were able to. So the people who actually want to back out, who really would kind of, you know, stop the entire thing now, is a small number, definitely a minority yeah. uh, of the population. But as you said, the problem is between reversing the entire thing and saying let's stop, which I think is, it appears, well, we don't know if it's legally doable under the Article 50 bit, that we'll find out in due course, but the EU seems to be sending the noises to say it'd be happy uh, to stop the process. What I'm not sure about is actually the long-term impact on, on UK diplomacy globally, uh, in the sense that you mm -hmm. kind of put yourself in a very weak position. Yes. Um, and it's not really clear what that would be. You know, how much influence would we continue to have in the EU, being the people who started all of this off, so soaked up loads of civil servant time, preparing for it and then changing their minds? Um, and of course, the country's 50-50 split, so you're going to annoy half the population, whatever it is you do. Um, and there does appear to be an increasing number of people who are being a bit more pragmatic about this, saying, actually, I didn't vote to leave, however, that's now the way things are going, let's get on with it and make a good job of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is completely anecdotal, but my, it's, my point of view would seem that people have almost accepted it now. Uh, there's a, uh, well, it strikes me that there's a lot of people say exactly as you said. Yeah, just you know, a decision's been made, regardless of which way I voted. This has to continue. Yeah, and I think that's I'd, I'd be I'd be careful about how I phrase this next bit. I don't think that's necessarily a majority view of business because that's that's not something we tested the members' opinions on directly. But certainly mm. anecdotally, um, what they're looking for is is an outcome which we can start to plan for. Essentially, so I think you know, constantly you turning around what may or may not come is not helpful. Mm -hmm. And certainly, but said yeah, anecdotally, we've heard more and more companies saying it's not what I want. It's not remotely what I think is best for my company, my sector, my country. But you know, if it be done best, it be done quickly. Let's crack on, make a good job of it, and move on. The worst call for business always is this world of uncertainty where you really don't know where you're going. That's where investment gets stalled. That's where employment gets stalled. Uh, and the rest of us will pay the price for that economically. Let's just flip the coin here. What do you think the view is of this election from our partners in Europe? Do you think they favour it? Do you, do you think that they think that they welcome it? Would they prefer a, a, a weaker UK government? Um, I think some of the initial reaction that I saw on Twitter was was kind of saying that we can't we can't let ourselves fall out of the limelight for five minutes, and that we're constantly <laughs> kind of trying to pull focus from the rest of the EU. Um, well, I, I, I don't know if it's a case of that. I think the, the election kind of makes sense for our kind of own, inter, own internal politics. Um, and I think for the people on the other side who kind of want this whole process to be go smoothly as well, they can probably understand why it's needed, um, particularly the point around we don't want a general election falling halfway through the transitionary period. Um, and so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about the European public. I don't know whether they, they will think that we're, we're constantly kind of kicking up a fuss over things or not. No, and I suspect they're probably, they've probably got slightly odd views as well. You know, the, the French elections, of course, first round done um, this weekend, second round to come in a couple of weeks, German elections in the summer. Um, they've also got some of their own political challenges here. But I think, 
I mean, there, was, there were comments from the from people within the EU after Theresa May called this election and said, you know, don't think that a much stronger majority for you in your parliament will affect the kind of deal that you can get between the UK and the EU. And actually, from their point of view, that's absolutely reasonable. Yeah. You know, that's it. They, they are there to negotiate on behalf of the EU27 to get the best possible deal for the EU27 that they can get. Our own internal politics, I suspect, will not sway that one way or the other. Well, you've got to give people in the EU uh, at least at least some credit, which is they're very consistent. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's it, one of the things that's you know, it's difficult for us. We we stand as policy people here trying to represent you know broadly the voice of business, which is you know almost as divided in all of this as the as the public generally is. But we do always do our best to approach policy from a pragmatic point of view. Sometimes mm. the people you're dealing with on the other side of the table, that might be in a business merger. It might be in other commercial deals, or in this case with you know, global diplomacy. They'll make decisions you don't like, but actually, if you can put yourself in their shoes, you can understand why they're making them, and that's okay. Excellent. Right, well, shall we leave it there, chaps? Uh, and um, just a quick reminder f- from me, please follow us on um, on Twitter. Christian, what's, what's your new, your shiny new tw- Twitter handle? My shiny new Twitter handle is uh, at GMCC underscore Christian. Alex? That falls in line with mine, which is at JMCC underscore Alex. Nice and easy. And mine is at JBeardmore. If you'd be kind enough as well to leave us a quick review on iTunes, it would be much appreciated. And until next week, goodbye. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.